person, and this isn't everyone, as a person, I'm really, really good and I'm at my best if I genuinely care about something. So I'm only going to do things I genuinely care about. If you're looking for a reason to do something in the beginning, it's going to be really hard to find because you don't know what's going to happen. But if you kind of go into things and into decisions knowing that like whatever happens will be the right thing and I'm going to make the most of every experience and every job and every move, then like you can't make a wrong decision. A lot of people look at my career and they're like, oh, well, every decision has been totally right. But like it did not make any sense when I did it. It was just like how I did it. Welcome back to Vanessa Wants to Know, where I, Vanessa Hong, get to have conversations that move you. Every other Tuesday, I sit down with a paradigm-shifting guest from the world of fashion, business, food, and beyond, who's moving the dial in a really big way. Today's guest, Jen Rubio, is doing just that. Co-founder and chief brand officer of Away Luggage, Jen and her partner, Steph Corey, in as little as four years, have completely revolutionized the way that we travel, specifically how we look and feel when we travel. In this conversation, I really want to get into the personal side of Jen's story. Oftentimes, with so many of these successful startups, we overlook the human component. We get so wrapped up with asking founders about strategy, life hacks, etc., that we forget that a person's history and background Well, that plays just as an important role. And that's why I find Jen's story so fascinating. Jen talks about immigrating to the U.S. at age seven with her family, understanding what it meant early on to be different, and ultimately how this and her very non-linear career path, which included stints at Johnson & Johnson, Neutrogena, then a game-changing role at Warby Parker, led her to forming away in 2015, which just this year, by the way, reached unicorn status with a $1.4 billion valuation. Jen was super fun to chat with, and I'm so grateful that she really went in to a lot of these topics I've never heard her publicly talk about before. I learned so much from her, and I know you will too. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of Vanessa Wants to Know with Away co-founder Jen Rubio. All right, Jen, thank you so much for finally making this happen. It's been a bit of a saga. Yeah, there's a lot of, that's what happens with my travel schedule. It's a, it's a lot of moving parts. Yeah, I never thought I'd be like that. I'm so sorry. No, not at all. <laughs> Where were you last traveling from? I was in San Francisco, and before that, I was in Ibiza. I think when we were first trying to record this, I was in Denver. Oh, yeah, right. And then something happened to the flight. Yeah, it got canceled. I went back to San Francisco. Yeah. And I was in Sun Valley before. I've just been everywhere. I read somewhere that you, like, travel over 200,000 miles a year. It's probably going to be over almost 300 this year. Isn't that crazy? That is wild. Yeah. That is – that's insane. But it adds up. So I split my time between New York and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So it's every week. Every week. Every week, that's 5,000. Wow. And then there's like a few big trips to Asia. Yeah. There's yeah, another yeah. like 10, 15,000 miles yeah. than to Europe. And it's just like, it's a lot of short trips. So. Right. That just add up over time. Yeah. Such a trooper. I used to think that like travel was a, this is going to be a little controversial given what I do. I used to think travel was like a special thing. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like, oh, I don't have to like keep up with how I eat or how I work out because yeah. I'm traveling. Yeah. And then I was like, wait, I'm on the road like 300 days a year. I'm yeah. just like now 
eating like crap and yeah. never working out. So like once you kind of get in the mental mindset that yeah. it's part of your life, then I think you would just get really good at it. You're almost like an athlete, but like you're like that a traveler. So kind. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like how athletes yeah. just have that mentality. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. It's like, it's not a special occasion. Like this is my life. So I optimize around right. that. We were talking a little bit before this about how my assistant and I, we've researched a lot of things on you. There's Actually, for such a for a company that started only in 2015, there's a lot of stuff. So I've like looked a lot into it. You guys really dug in. Yeah, we really dug. We're good Asians. Yeah, my assistant's Asian as well. <laughs> well researched. <laughs> I know, very well researched. <laughs> but what I I've consistently found in a lot of the things, like in your interviews and like your talks, was a lot of it was very much focused on the business part. It was like, Jen, the businesswoman, like, tell us your strategy. You know, we want to know how your brain works. And I was kind of thinking to myself, although I did get snippets of who you were personally, you know, how I wanted to approach this conversation, how I really wanted to chat with you was, you know, who is the person behind the brain, right? Like when, whenever we look at these huge companies, like a lot of these companies like yours, it's always like, well, what's the strategy? But for me, I'm always like, but there's always a human behind the strategy and there's a story behind the human. All of that background really informs, you know, who you are as a, as a businesswoman, as a woman, you know, as a human on this planet right now. Yeah. And I appreciate that so much because I think I've been on so many panels. I've done so many fireside chats. I've done so many interviews and I've kind of just not been trained, but like just been conditioned to kind Mm. of someone's like, tell me about yourself. And I start talking about the business and I start Mm. talking about work and I do that, but that's not how I treat other people. So it's, it's really interesting because when I go out to dinner and, you know, we're in New York and everyone just like talks about what do you do? So I actually make it a goal to not ask, what do you do to someone who's new? But then when someone asks me, all I talk about is work. So it's like funny how when I'm talking to other people, I consider that, but then I just only talk about a way, which is really right. interesting. I think it's really interesting too, because something else I picked up in your description of your company and kind of the ethos is that the word story gets dropped so often, right? Mm-hmm. And that is like, I can't think of something more antithetical to like analytics and strategy than the word story. So I think it's it's great that we're going to have this opportunity to kind of dig in a little yeah. and have a chat about your life. So why don't we rewind? You were born in the Philippines. Yep. Where did you live when you were when your family was still in the Philippines? Uh, we were in Quezon City. Okay. So I was there until I was about seven, and that was fun. Yeah. I, mean, I don't remember that much, but I remember right. just having like a really fun time. You know, a huge Filipino family. All Filipino fa- families are huge. Are massive. Though. I think my mom is like this is horrible. That I don't even know. My mom's like one of twelve or thirteen. I think it was thirteen. Thirteen. <laughs> <laughs> and my my dad is one of thirteen. Whoa, your dad was thirteen. Was one yeah, of thirteen so, as well. And they all got married, and they all had kids. So I have hundreds of cousins. That is wild. It's actually so funny because there's this guy, when you first started the company, there's a guy on Twitter who would like reply to every article and be like, this is my cousin, Jen. We would just kind of laugh and be like, I don't know who that guy is. Right. And then I did 23andMe last year. And you know how it shows you your relatives who've Mm -hmm. done 23andMe and he's at the top of the thing. And I was like, oh my God, that's a Twitter dude. He really is my cousin. Oh my gosh. That's hilarious. But you just never know. In the Philippines, we're all cousins. Right. Oh my gosh. That's wild. Yeah. 
You were there until about, you said, seven years old. Mm-hmm. And then your your family, your mom, your dad, and you. Were your brother and sister born yet? My brother was. So it was okay. me and my brother. And then we moved to New Jersey when I was right. seven. My brother was six or, or five. Yeah. So you don't remember so much of your life when you were in the Philippines, but you said it was very happy. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, it was like, very you're just- happy. I mean, I think it's just like, one, I think it's just the culture. And I think when you're mm-hmm. surrounded with family all the time. Like the Filipino culture is like you share everything. Yeah. Dinners were always, it's not like here where you're like, oh, we're having a dinner party. It's like a whole thing. It's like food could come out and all of a sudden there's like 20 people coming out of nowhere. Exactly. And so everything's just like a very, very shared. There's like a big sense of community. Mm. You know, we'd come home from school and there were always people over. The cousins were always playing. So I think that was, um, I don't know, that kind of instills something in you. Like you always want to be around people and like that's where you feel safe. And I think that was one of the hardest things about coming here because we went to New Jersey. We had a couple cousins that we were really close to that, but two out of, you know, instead of 40 or 50, we would still have like big family gatherings. You know, a lot of my aunts and uncles were already here in the U.S., but it wasn't that sense of like there was always people around. Like there's like family always buzzing around you. And I think that's a big part of why I've always craved community. So I think I read or I listened to you on another podcast about how you and your brother, you put on snowsuits or something (laughs) because you thought that, oh my God, we're going to like a winter wonderland. So as a young- That's how it was sold to us. We're like, you're moving to New Jersey. And we're like, what's New Jersey? And they're like, it snows in the winter. And we're just like, this is amazing. And we went to SM, the big department store in Manila, and bought snowsuits. And we like insisted that we wear them on the plane. We were on this like super long flight from Manila to New York. And we like sat there all sweaty in our little snowsuits on the plane. Total letdown. We like landed in September. It was 90 degrees. You're like, what is going on? Where is the snow, mom and dad? Yeah. It was actually really funny because we landed and I remember the first thing, a couple of my aunts came to pick us up. And they took us to Toys R Us. There was like a giant Toys R Us near New York airport. And they're like, you can buy anything you want. And we'd never been around like anything like that before, you know? Not that like we were in an uncivilized place. It was just like a giant, massive, like hundreds of thousands of square feet of like toys. It's very American. It was so American. And this was like literally off the plane. They took us there before they took us home. And like, I didn't know what to do. And I remember I still have it. I bought have anything in Toys R Us. I bought like one of those like cardboard books. I literally bought a book. I like didn't know what to do. So you were just like so overwhelmed. Yeah, it was super overwhelming. That's wild. Yeah. This was before like my Polly Pocket obsession. Oh my God. I had a Polly Pocket <laughs> as well. I had so many of those. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it was just like that kind of like American consumerism was crazy to me. Right. So you get here, you're in New Jersey. What was that like when you first got here? It must have been so different. Yeah, it was really different. And you didn't have that much family here. You said you had like, you know, a few aunts and... Yeah, a few aunts and uncles. And and uncles. Like they all, you know, they also came from the Philippines. So they all like craved that sort of community too. So like weekends we all spent together and we were really close with all of them before kind of everyone spread out all over the US. But it was really different. But also when you're that young, you're just like, oh, this is just another thing. You're not thinking about it in terms of, oh, this has changed or like this is a huge like difference in lifestyle. Like you're a kid. So you're just like, okay. And and you get used to it. And then my dad actually came a couple of years after us. So like I oh, really miss my dad. Oh, yeah. why was that? Visa stuff. 
So he didn't have his visa yet, so he would come visit and then have to go back. So I remember there were, like, periods of us really missing him, but then he finally, like, moved, moved when my mom was about to have my little sister. A lot of changes, but it was kind of just teaches you to go with it, right? I remember feeling very, very different from the people I went to school with, just, like, a bunch of, like, suburban white kids. You know, not in, like, a horrible way. It wasn't, like, bullied or anything, but I think it's just, like, ingrained in you that, like, something's a little bit off. Like my parents would cook a lot at home. I remember not even realizing, but one of my friends was like, oh, like your clothes smell like food. And I remember just getting so upset with like my mom being like, you shouldn't cook that stuff. Just like weird little things like that, that like you don't understand that as a kid or like such a rich, valuable part of your identity. And I just like didn't want my clothes to smell like food. You know, it's really interesting. All the guests I've had so far, whether they work in fashion or they're in food or or whatever it is, everyone has shared that same experience. Like I was sharing with another guest that my first moment of ever realizing, oh, I'm different was actually through food. It didn't even register when I didn't see anyone that looked like me on television as a child. I was like, mm-hmm. whatever, this is just what television is, you yeah, know? Yeah, that, that I didn't realize until I was like 13 or 14. Exactly. And I remember, yeah, I was like in school, you know, lunch, which is like a joyous time because you like get to hang out with your friends mm-hmm. and whatnot. I just remember like one of my friends just being like, ew, like, what are you, what are you eating? Because my grandfather, because for for Chinese families, typically our grandparents like take care of us Mm -hmm. and they like cook all of our lunches and whatnot. And like my grandfather was a chef when he was younger. So he like made these extravagant like beef stir fries. Which like we would kill for now, right? Exactly, right? And I remember like very instinctively, this was a moment and I was very young. This must have been like five, six years old, right? So proud of like this wonderful meal that my grandfather made me. And then one of my friends was just like, you like, what are you eating? And I instinctively knew in that moment, mm-hmm. I was like, I can't eat this anymore. Like I need to hide this. And I didn't understand then what it was. Mm-hmm. All I knew was whatever this is, is not good. Which Um, is like a horrible kind of like little seed that's planted. And I remember going to Costco with my dad one weekend and just like begging him to buy Lunchables. Those like disgusting. With the plastic and there's like crackers and the cheese Yeah, I was like, that's what I want to bring to lunch. Like I don't want to bring... Me too. I don't want to bring these like amazing lunches anymore because, you know, I thought it was so different. And I think also I remember little things like my grandmother lived with us, right? Which is like totally normal for us. That was so weird to all of my friends. Mm. They were like, why does your grandma live with you? Mm. I was like, I mean, she takes care of us. Yeah. Like, that's just how it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel it's interesting. A lot of these reconciliations I've had with identity and race as loaded of a word as it is, it's really only started dawning on me very recently. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that was like the same for you. Cause I also read that either you asked or your parents had suggested that you go to accent school. Oh my God. No, I begged. You came to the U.S. not speaking English or no, a little they, English? So in the Philippines, like everyone speaks English. Right. Like you, you speak English at school, but you, it's actually so funny because I get so many pitches now from like customer service companies who are like, the Philippines is great if you want to outsource your customer service because everyone speaks English, but it's like accented, right? So food was one thing. And the other thing was just like language. And I remember I was in public school in New Jersey, you know, like in the Philippines, I'd always been like the smart one. And I remember they put me in the class where like people 
I was just like way ahead of everyone in my classes because they had put me in like an ESL class. And I was just like, no, 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 I'm reading like chapter books, you know? And I think that was like another thing where I was like, oh, okay, because I have an accent or because like I speak a little differently, like I'm not even getting the education that I need. So I think that was another big realization for me. And I, I like watched a lot of TV. I would watch the news a lot to try to get like my pronunciation right. And I read a ton too, but I think what I realized very early on, actually someone told, told me something a few years ago that really stuck with me where like, sometimes people get laughed at because they pronounce something wrong, but it actually just means they learned it by reading. And I read so much, like I read all the time and like a ton of books. It's like what, you know, it's like the thing that I asked my parents to get me when I first came here. But then I realized when I got here that I like, didn't know how to pronounce anything the way I thought I did. So I would like use a lot of really big words and I knew what they meant, but I didn't actually know how to pronounce them. So even now, like if I don't know how to pronounce something, I like will find a different word to use because I feel like that was instilled in me from a very young age that like I have an accent and I'm not pronouncing things correctly. I totally, like when I read that, it kind of triggered some memories of my own. So I was born in Canada. I was first gen, but my parents mainly spoke Cantonese at home and definitely like my grandparents spoke Cantonese. They spoke English as well, but again, like with an accent. And I'm not really sure at what point, but this was an elementary school, what again triggered it. But I was like, I need to basically sound Caucasian, like, because mm -hmm. that is how I'm going to be respected. And this is like young. This is like elementary, not even high school yet. And yeah. like you, like I voraciously read because I was a reader, but I also understood, well, people will respect me based on how I sound like the number of big words that I can use. Mm -hmm. Same with you. Like I didn't even really care about the news, but I would watch CNN because I'm like, okay, well, these people have the best accents because they're smart. They're smart sounding. You know, I often think about that, that today. And I've had like, oddly enough, I've had other Asians like ABCs and CBCs tell me, wow, like you sound like a white girl. Like, wow, <laughs> where did that come? And I like, it's really, again, one of those reconciliations that I'm having now in my 30s. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really funny with both of us how it's, it wasn't the cause of any like big outward things. Because I think sometimes when I talk about this stuff, people are like, oh, were you like bullied yeah. or made fun of? No, like I had a totally great, happy childhood, a lot of friends. But it's like little things, like these super nuanced interactions that you're like, I should sound like this, or I should be eating this, and that will make things easier for me. And that's probably how you approach like a lot of things in life subconsciously, right? Where you're yeah. like, if I just tweak this thing, things will go more smoothly. I'm definitely like a fixer. Like I, mm -hmm. I don't know if it's because I'm, we're both fire signs as well. Mm -hmm. Like for me, when I, you? I'm an Aries. Oh, I know. Beyonce's an Aries. Oh, really? Leo yeah. and Aries are great together. Yeah. Until they're not. Okay. It's because like, it's like a yeah, collision yeah. of like two fire signs. I mean, it's not a sign to, I don't have scientific proof, but like a lot of my fire sign friends, it's like, you see a problem and you're like, I'm going to solve this. Yeah. And you see right a problem now. before it's an obvious problem. Like I'm always trying to fix things and people are like, there's nothing wrong with this. I'm like, no, no, but there will be something wrong with this or it could be better. And I, I think that's the thing, like Steph, my co-founder, also a Leo, we both see things before they even become problems and we're always trying to get people to improve or to fix things, which I think can get super exhausting when you work for us, right? Like if you don't, you're like, this isn't a problem. Why are you making such a big deal about it? But like you kind of like see down the road 
that it could be, or you just see that it could be better. And like, if you can make it better, then why not? Yeah. But yeah, I think that's like been in me from a very, very early age. Yeah. I have to say, like, just looking at the path that you've taken, there's always been one, I've seen like a lot of fearlessness and one just knowing what you want in a way. That's interesting that you say that because, so I get that a lot. They're like, people are like, oh, you're fearless. But I think to me, that implies that you see something and there's something to be scared of and you choose to not be scared Mm. of it. Where if I kind of look at all my life decisions, like it didn't even cross my mind that it would be a scary thing. Like to me, fearless is like, oh, like you're standing on the edge of a cliff and you want to jump in the water and it's scary, but you do it anyway. But I think the things that I've done, like switch jobs or move or just like take these kinds of risks, it it never felt like it wasn't like, oh, this is a scary thing. It was just like, oh, this is a thing that I'm going to be doing. And I don't know if that comes from the fact that that's basically what my parents did when they moved us here because it was like they just knew it would be better for us. I mean, it's they're the ultimate risk. I find it so ironic that like so many first gen children, you know, like their parents want them to be doctors. They want them to have solid, safe jobs. And they're like, don't take risks. But these parents are the ones who came, they took the biggest risk. They went to a country that they often have never been to before to seek a better life. Yeah. Yeah. And and maybe it's like, because they took those risks and they knew how hard it was. I think our parents just want things to be better and easier for us always. But I don't know. I came from one of those families where everyone was like a doctor or a nurse or like something in the medical field. And I think I knew that was always there for me. And I think I knew that I was doing was different, but also my parents just like wanted us to be happy. There wasn't a ton of pressure. And I think, you know, if I think about like school and, you know, it wasn't like come home and do like hours of homework. They're just like, are you doing it or not? And sometimes I didn't, I would get in trouble because like teachers would call home And that's when I would get in trouble, but it wasn't, I feel like so much of my life is because of the fact that nobody forced me to do anything. And maybe it's because no one can really force me to do anything because of my personality. So they're just like, she's going to do what she's going to do. And and I think that also was from a very early age gave me like a sense of like my destiny is in my own hands. Like no one's telling me to do anything. And would you say like, there's just like a confidence there, like a confidence that you're yeah. just going to do it. Yeah, that I'm just going to do it. And if it works out, amazing. And if it doesn't, then I'll figure out something else. I mean, I think it's important to note, and I've been talking about this a lot, where I talk a lot about like having a purpose in life or about your career being a platform for all the things you want to do, or, or you're like or using your life as a platform for all the things you want to do. But I think it's super important to caveat that like that for sure comes from a place of privilege. Like you can't tell someone who is just trying to like put food on the table or trying to pay rent that, oh no, you need to get a job that gives you purpose because that's not the reality for a lot of people. Like, you know, we live in a bubble where we we can think about these things where it can be super inspiring for me to say to someone like, hey, if you hate your job, like just quit, just find another one. Like there's something out there and like you can, you can do the things that nourish you. I do think it is really important within our bubble you know, to to pursue that. But I think you can only do that once you've kind of fulfilled all the other levels of like your hierarchy of needs, you know? So I think part of it is that I was fortunate enough that my parents like made a ton of sacrifices. They came here. I always had a good life. I was like never worried about things. And it it let me just kind of build that confidence and take risks and do things because I was supported and and I felt safe. 
Yeah, I have to say just you articulating that right now, it's definitely the same story, you know, that I have, like where my parents just worked their asses off. Yeah. So I could have the freedom to be creative and just do whatever I wanted to do. And you mentioned a while back, you know, you've switched a lot of jobs. You've lived in a lot of different countries. You went the traditional path. I mean, you went to university. You went to the university of, no, you went to Penn State. I went to Penn State. So you went My to, mom also thought I went to university. Of Penn. I know there's a difference. There's a big difference. A, All the Penn people would be like, um, there's a huge difference. Yeah. There's a big price difference as yeah. well. But also, but here's the thing. Here's how much my parents did not even care what school I went to. They were like, you should try for like Princeton or Yale, but whatever. Like so much so that like, in a way they're just like, visit whatever colleges you want. Tell us what you need. If you want us to come, we'll come. You know, they weren't like, helicopter parents at all. And I was like, hey, I'm going to Penn State. There's a bunch of stuff that happened, but I ended up going to Penn State. And my mom got me a sweatshirt from Penn, like the University of Pennsylvania. I was like, no, mom, this is a totally different school. <laughs> but it was, they were just like, okay, like whatever your decision is. Not because they didn't care, but because they like trusted me to make that decision for my life. It's very progressive yeah. of your Especially parents. for like immigrant parents. Totally. There were definitely a lot of conversations about like, why don't you become a dentist? Like you can take over your mom's dental practice. I was just like, I'm not interested. Like, I don't want to do that. I think there was something my parents that realized also that was totally ingrained in me that like, if you don't want to do something, you're just not going to be very good at it. I 100% agree with that. But that's the truth, yeah. right? That's totally the truth. So in university, you were studying, what was it? Supply? Supply chain. Yeah. So what does that mean? It's like a, a, dis, a business discourse, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's part of the business school. It's like operations and logistics and how a product goes from like raw materials to in your home. Right. And all of the things in the middle. From the get-go, you're like, if I'm going to study anything in university, you were always like, I'm going to do business. This is what I want to do. Not always. Like I wanted to be a lawyer. Like I really? thought, yeah. But I think that just comes from like watching tons of TV. Right. And like it's, law and order. <laughs> I mean, it's very glamorous, but I have like lawyer friends and- Oh no, I mean, it sounds horrific. It's, it's really intense. There's a lot of lawyers that work for away now and I'm just like- God. It's a lot of paperwork. Yeah, it's a lot of paperwork, a lot of reading, but the thing I love to read, I love right. to debate, I used to do all that stuff. So I also was going to be a lawyer, which my parents were like, cool. And then I got to school. It was actually really funny. I don't think I've ever talked about this before. So I really wanted to go to Duke. I had it in, I don't know, I've, I've like never been in North Carolina. Right. It's um, a great school. Yeah. I was like, Duke Law, that's going to be me. I'm going to be a lawyer. And then like senior year rolls around and I had gotten waitlisted or deferred. I was like, fine, I'll just go to Penn State for a semester. And I get there and I'm like, this is amazing. It was like TV college. You're like, I watched so much TV when I was right. a kid. I mean, I know all colleges have this, but there's like a lawn, like people like throwing footballs around. There were football games. There were like sororities. Like I got sucked into the whole thing and I yeah. just, I just stayed and never went to Duke. But when I was there, I was like, okay, I have to pick a major. I was like really interested, like took, a, I'd taken a bunch of business classes freshman year. And I kind of just went in that direction. But again, it wasn't like this whole thing. You know, sometimes people ask me and they're like, how did you decide to switch from law to business? I'm like, no, just, I was just like following what I was interested in. Like I stopped being interested in law. I got interested in business. Again, it wasn't like a risk or fearlessness. I was just like, okay, I'm going this direction now. 
I have to say like that like decision or like that knowing of like, okay, I'm kind of done with this now. Like this is no longer interesting to me. Mm -hmm. I'm moving on to the next thing. Like that attitude has guided you in so many of the decisions, right? Yeah, in your life. And it's a, it's been amazing, obviously, but there's also a shadow side to it, right? So there's like that kind of like risk-taking fearlessness and just like following your heart. That also means that like I can be super flaky. I'm like not great at communicating with people all the time. My friends like can feel neglected, like things like that. Like so there's like little behaviors that like I am working on as a human to fix. But I think just overall, this, it's served me so well in life to just know that as a person, and, and this isn't everyone, as a person, I'm really, really good and I'm at my best if I genuinely care about something. So I'm only going to do things I genuinely care about. And it means that like I'm super present in person and I like give everyone my full attention. But then that means everyone who's trying to like text me or email me or get in touch with me like isn't getting their answer. So there's like, you know, you have to make up for it in like other parts of your life. But I right. think overall that's like been the guiding principle of all my decisions. So you're you're in university, you start interning here and there, and then ultimately you end up at Warby. Yeah, I like spent a couple years like freelance social media consulting. I had worked at Neutrogena right out of school. I actually dropped out of school like my last semester. Again, my mom was like, she didn't know that I dropped out because I actually walked in graduation. Oh. Yeah. Wait, and then how I was can like, you do that if you... Because I only had like six credits oh, left okay. and I was like enrolled like in them. Classes. Like two classes. I was going to finish it online. I never did it. Yeah. So like, you know, when you walk in graduation, they don't give you your degree. Right. They just give you like the blank thing. Oh, okay. Well, I, I graduated, so I don't yeah. know. No, no, but no, when you walk, they, but they mail you your degree. Oh, yeah, you're right, because it's yeah. just like a piece of paper. They give you like a blank piece. Yeah, like a blank okay, right. Thing. Yeah, 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 totally. So I did the thing, took the pictures by the yeah. lion. Yeah, yeah. They just never like mailed me the thing, because I never yeah. finished. No one needs to know, as long as you walked across. Yeah, no, I mean, I tell everyone all the time now, because <laughs> like it worked out. But yeah, so I had done a bunch of jobs when I was like 23, 24, I was in New York. I was actually about to move back to LA. This is a whole other thing. This is like, again, now just retracing all my decisions. I was living in LA after school, done a bunch of jobs. I worked at Neutrogena. Wait, how did you end up in LA? It was like my last internship mm. and I just stayed. So like my last internship was at Neutrogena and I stayed working there. Worked there for a little bit. It left Neutrogena. I was really into social media. How did you even like get into that? Because you were a super early adopter of it. You know what it was? It was Tumblr. Tumblr now is like just like a weird porn site. But um, <laughs> I mean, it had its version. Yeah, back. it had like everybody had a Tumblr. Everybody account. had a Tumblr. It was like, you know, freedom and creative expression and like a real community. Like early Tumblr people like are still friends. Right. And I was on Tumblr. I was like obsessed with social media. Like I was on MySpace a lot. And I didn't realize then that it was like a thing that you could use for business. But once I did, I was like, oh, this is like a thing all businesses should be using. You know, it was like the start of like web 2.0, like all this stuff. So yeah, so I was like in Neutrogena, I was like really interested in social media. I put together that it's part of marketing. I like wanted to work in marketing. They told me I couldn't because I need an MBA. Like I didn't get my undergrad degree. So I was like, okay, cool. I think I'm just going to do this. And I'd saved up a bunch of money. And again, I think it's also part of like this decision being really easy is because I'd done a lot of things along the way, like save up a bunch of money to make it easy to make the decision that I was going to leave Neutrogena. 
just start like consulting for small businesses. So I like worked for a bunch of like cafes and restaurants in LA and like I would get them on Twitter. And then I started working for freelancing for agencies. And then I made my own agency. It was just like me and an intern. Right. And we would start like promoting movies and shows and all of these things. And it was like such a weird, wild time. Like on the side, I was like a personal assistant to a bunch of people. UTA, the talent agency, was just building out like their digital division. So they're like passing people off to me. And it was amazing. It was like right place, right time. And there was nobody doing it. It was like the Wild West. Anyway, that led me to work at a digital agency in New York. So I moved back to New York. And then after a year in New York, I was like, I'm so over this. My boyfriend at the time and I were like, let's move back to LA. So we decided to move back to LA, literally got a house in Venice, like signed a lease to like rent this cute little house. We're going to move back the week before I was going to move back. Rich Tong from Tumblr. Yeah. Oh my God. I know Rich. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Rich. He like started all this. Was like, hey, have you heard of Warby Parker? It's this new company. They're just in the New York Times. They like need some social media help. Like, do you want to go talk to them? And I show up. It was literally like an, a conversation in Union Square Park. I didn't realize it at the time because obviously like I wasn't interviewing for a job. But it was a job interview. Right. And I like totally fell in love with the company. I fell in love with the people I talked to. I was like, this is amazing. And the week before I was supposed to move back to LA, I took this job. And my boyfriend was like, what is wrong with you? Like we're moving back to LA. And I was like, we'll figure it out. We'll make it work. And he was like, I can't believe you took this job without like talking about it. But it was just like, to me, it felt so right. It was something I wanted to do. It was like a startup, which I was very into startups. It was like this amazing new brand. It was like an, an opportunity to get in the ground level. There's like maybe 15 people working there at the time. And I just thought it was so cool. And like, it felt so right that like, I did not even hesitate, which is crazy, right? Like, yeah, it's really crazy. I think it's also It also meant that like, I spent the next two years or like a year and a half flying back and forth. I had no money flying back and forth between New York and LA, you know, stalking like JetBlue flights right. or like last minute deals and like, you know, building up miles. And I think that's how, actually how I started traveling so much in my adult life because I was like flying back from between New York and LA. That's where I like learned how to take red eyes really well. Right. You know, I'd like take the red eye back Sunday, be back in the office on Monday. Right, right, right. Which is crazy. I was like 24, was not making a lot of money at all, but I just like loved my boyfriend and I loved my job and I was like, I'll figure it out. I mean, it was really interesting too, because I guess when you got in with Warby, I mean, no one had heard of it yet, right? And it was like this direct-to-consumer eyeglass sunwear brand. And I think for a lot of people back then, they were just like, well, it's just glasses, right? Like, what's the big deal? But you had the foresight and the instinct to be like, oh, you know, like I'm really vibing with this company. Yeah. I mean, instinct is such a huge part of it. Because if you look at every decision I've ever made, it's like, why would you do that? Every step, you know, I left school early to work at Neutrogena. But like, why, why would you do that? Like, why wouldn't you just finish? I was like, no, like I instinctively knew like that's what I wanted to do. And then I left Neutrogena to be like, I think social media is going to be like a thing and I'm going to do it. Or I'm going to try to do it. But we're like, why would you do that? Like, why would you give up a paycheck and like have to do all these like jobs on the side? And I was just like, nope, this is like what I want to do. Left that to go work in agency and people are like, oh no, you're going to be miserable now. Like, why would you do that? But then that gave me like all of my connection that like, like really started my network. I like had worked, it was the first time I ever worked with like really huge brands. I think that's the thing. It's like, if you're looking for a reason 
to do something in the beginning, it's going to be really hard to find because you don't know what's going to happen. But if you kind of go into things and into decisions knowing that like whatever happens will be the right thing and I'm going to make the most of every experience and every job and every move, then like you can't make a wrong decision. Like I think a lot of people look at my career and they're like, oh, well, every decision has been totally right. But like it did not make any sense when I did it. It was just like how I did it. It was like, it was more important to me that I make a decision, I commit, and then I'm committed to like having the best experience possible. Even if it's something like, I look back after Warby, I left to move to London and work at All Saints. And I like, wouldn't say that was a highlight in my career from a personal experience. Like, I don't, I don't, I think I actually contributed that much to the company, which to me, like, you know, not like a huge success. Like it has nothing to do with the company or the people or anything. It was just like my my individual contribution there like wasn't great. But I learned so much. I met so many people. I used that time to like focus on like my personal life in a new country. And I feel like I really grew a lot as a person. So to me, like I don't have any regrets because I don't I don't think anything is a waste of time. I hundred percent agree. It's interesting that you say that because People who look at your life or my life, they're like, wow, everything made so much sense along the way. But like you, I mean, while I was in a lot of these kind of fork moments of my life, I'm like, you know what? I'm literally just going to walk blindly into this direction because that's the direction I want to go into. And it's only retroactively, you know, now that I'm able to like look at my life, be like, Mm -hmm. oh, well, of course, you know, like something, something instinctual was really always pointing me in the right direction. And I don't like to use the word like failure because I, yeah. failure, I mean, first has like this horrible negative connotation, but it's, it's almost kind of taking away the fact that like all events in our lives, bad or good, they place us exactly to the present moment, you yeah, know? And they shape you and you learn from them. And I think even when like things don't work out well, I, I realize like, oh, okay, well, I I wouldn't be good at that. So I think after All Saints, I actually worked, um, had a very brief stint as interim CMO of a juice, like a cold-pressed juice company. Oh, which one? In London. It's called Savse. Are they still around? I think so. I think they're only in the UK. I didn't know know the juice. Yeah, it it was like a blip on my timeline. I think that's also the thing, right? Like people think about decisions and they're like, this is a big decision for the rest of my life. And then you look back and you're like, I oh, know it's just like part of it's like time. a blink of an eye. Yeah. I worked there for maybe three months and I was so bad at it. It wasn't like <sighs> the kind of marketing that I'm good at. It was like CPG, like dealing with supermarkets and grocery stores. So it was like very traditional. Like shelf space. Like yeah, very like working for like Unilever, Procter and Gamble. And like it's it's different. It's like very data driven. And you just like and I just wasn't good. I think sometimes I'm like, oh yeah, no, I just moved on. But like they definitely don't want to hire me as a full-time CMO. And that's fine because now I know that like that in whatever next step I was going to take and it ended up being away, I knew that I was going to like lean into like brand and storytelling and community and all the things I do care about instead of trying to be good at something that I'm not. And I think now it's it's funny because like all of the things that I'm trying to learn and improve at are to be like better at more operational and financial and more more analytical things. But that's because like I, I want to improve at that as a person, not because like I was being forced to at a certain step in my career. And to me, that makes a huge difference. I'm gonna have you regale our listeners with the story of the how, origin story. The origin story. I think it's really funny. For those who don't know it, why don't you tell us 
Yeah. Like well, how Away came about. How the origin story goes is I was in an airport. In Zurich. Mm-hmm. And my bag broke and and basically we started from there, from like a broken bag in an airport. There's a lot of obviously details to that. So to give the listeners more context, this was post-Juice Company. Okay. Post-All Saints. I was still living in London. I had taken some time off. I was like, oh, wow, I really suck at that, like marketing juices. So <laughs> why don't I, why don't I think about my next step for a little while before I take it? So I started... I like talk to friends and people would be like, maybe you should start a company. I'm like, yeah, but I don't really have an idea for a company and I don't just want to start a company for no reason. So I like, I really wanted to take my time. And I was like, I'm going to move back to New York. I started like interviewing for marketing jobs, like fashion companies. And I thought I was going to go down that road. And then I took the trip to Switzerland and my suitcase broke. And I started thinking about it and I was like, there were so many things wrong with like the luggage industry. It reminded me a lot of what Warby did with the eyewear industry. Steph at the time was at Columbia. Steph is your co-founder. Yeah. My co-founder was at Columbia. She was like in her last semester. She was like trying to figure out, she wanted to start a company. Columbia is like big on entrepreneurship. In business school. Mm-hmm. And you know, everyone around her was starting companies. Again, right place, right time, like mm-hmm. really good instinct. I just called her to talk about luggage and how this could be an idea for someone. It wasn't even like, hey, I'm going to start this company. We just started talking about it. And it just like all clicked and, and fell into place. And we spent the next year just working on Away. I mean, it's just really wild to think that like before Away, there were just heritage luggage brands. And then there were the really cheap, you know, luggages that were like made of like cloth or they just like weren't very good or like the wheels weren't really Yeah, bright. I mean, basi- basically like with luggage, you either go really high end or you go into a department store and find like the mid-level stuff that it was kind of crazy because like it was always like marked down. There were all the sales. Like you didn't really know why they were priced the way they were. Or you would go to like TJ Maxx or something, right? Yeah. Or Costco, but just or, buy cheap luggage. I, I remember Gilt would always have like sales on like luggage. luggage. And that's like where I would sometimes get stuff myself. Yeah. And also like you would buy cheap luggage and you weren't, you like weren't that upset if it broke. Mm-hmm. It kind of like, it'd been commoditized so much that you were just like, okay, unless I spend a ton of money, right. I'm just going to buy a cheap one. And it's basically just going to be torn apart after a few trips. And that's like a horrible way to, to think about buying product. Totally. There was no brand loyalty. And this was what got me really excited. I have a lot of friends. They all travel. All travel a lot. And they're very opinionated. And I asked everyone what luggage they used. And literally nobody had an answer. And this was in 2015. It wasn't that long ago. No. And people were like, what do you mean? Like what luggage you use? I'm like, there is a bag that you pack every week and you get on a plane and you go somewhere with it and you have that bag with you the whole time and you don't know what it's called. Mm-hmm. Could you imagine? Because like everyone has like their airplane outfit. Like we like we live in a world where like brands are a huge part of our lives, like whether you like it or not, whether you're conscious about it or not, you're loyal to certain brands and like that just did not exist in the luggage industry. Which is really, really wild. So you guys are working, you the two of you are working on it for a year. And Steph, she's graduated from Columbia. It was her last semester while we started working on it. So 
she only had classes a couple days a week. Right. So I was actually living on her couch. I had moved oh, back really? to New York, was living on her couch. Her boyfriend at the time was like, oh my God, what are you guys doing? <laughs> uh, it was actually amazing. His name is Peter. They're married now. Oh, great. And he, we were like, we're going to raise money to to start this luggage company. And he was like, he like took out his check. I'm going to be your first check-in. I really oh want God. this to work out. <laughs> That's so great. He's just like, I need Jen yeah. off the couch. Yeah, exactly. I like got an apartment the next day. It was such a fun time because it was also the last time that we both worked on everything. We're very much opposite. We have super complementary skill sets, which is amazing. And I think a huge part of like why OA has been successful, because if I know Steph is working on this half of the business and they're the things that I'm not good at, it lets me be free to be really good at what I'm good at, like versus being spread thin. So like everything I love to do and everything I'm good at, like Steph hates to do. She thinks I, she's like, I don't know how you do your job. That doesn't sound fun at all. And I think the same thing about her. So it's like an amazing partnership. And I see so many people who start companies together and they have the exact same skill set, the same interests, which means like all the stuff that they don't want to do, they have to do it anyway. Right. And, and they're not good at it. It was like an amazing partnership from the beginning. But that first year, we didn't split things up. We were like, let's both just have a say in everything and really talk through our decisions and why we make them. And I think that really set the stage for how thoughtful we wanted to be in building this company, whether it was hiring people or designing products or working with agencies or telling our story, like everything was super dialed. Like we, we would agonize over emails, like in a Google doc, we'd like email an investor and we'd spend an entire day just like editing each other's emails and like giving a reason for those edits. And it would take, so, it's like a five minute email it would take us a whole day. But now we know how the other person thinks, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And like, it's like, like those things like really ingrained, like a level of like thoughtfulness and attention to detail in us from the very beginning that, that I think is really rare. Yeah. I think like when you are involved with any startup, typically, I mean, you mentioned how the both of you were literally doing everything. There was like so much overlap. It's just because there's no one else to do it. Yeah, there's no one else. Like you don't have the money to pay for like someone to come in and help you develop something. But I think that like ingenuity, that openness to try things that may not be in your realm, like that's really where like new things come out of. And I think so much of it was so new for us. Like Neither of us had experience in the luggage industry. We'd obviously, uh, so Stefan actually worked at Warby Parker together, which is how right. I met her. So we'd both had startup experience and we both had startup experience from the same startup. So that context was really helpful. But every decision we made in the beginning, we made together and nothing was like a snap judgment. It was like, what is the most thoughtful decision we can come up with based on everything I know, everything she knows and the experiences that we've both had it's really interesting because I I think talking about it now, I realize how much that's influenced everything I do. Like now Steph and I can run totally independently, but I always know what she would do in any given situation and vice versa. And I think that gives you like a level of trust that just does not exist if you didn't put in the time in the beginning that we did. I know every decision she makes and that every decision I make, she's gone through that thought process that we used to go through together and I think that's why our relationship is so amazing. Like we just fully, fully trust each other. And we also, we work on our partnership, like a marriage. I think um, that's a great way to put it, right? Because it is like so much of like a two-way street, essentially. It's like to have that 
like in a relationship, like you see the the best relationships are ones where there's an open channel to have like really kind of candid conversations, whether they be painful or, or whether they be super happy. Yeah. And we leaned into difficult conversations from the very beginning. And I actually think working on my partnership with Steph has made me a better partner in my romantic life. I can definitely see that happening, right? Because yeah. so Steph and I see all of our, our entire leadership team has executive coaches. So we see the same executive coach. She sees us individually and together. So we like we basically have like couples therapy. Yeah, I was gonna say that kind of sounds like couples therapy. Yeah, no, and it's amazing. And in my romantic relationship with my fiance, things are amazing. We're like over the mood, like things are great right now. And a couple months ago, we were like, oh, we should do couples therapy. And people are like, that's like, is everything okay? It's like you, you guys just got aren't even married. <laughs> You're not even married. And we're like, yeah, but why wouldn't you work on it? Why would you wait to start it like when things get bad? You know that goes I mean? back to you being like identifying that something can be made better early yeah. on. So you may as well address it right now. Yeah. And our relationship is just like, to, like so with me and Stuart, my fiance, we see the same person individually and together. Oh, And really? she has permission to like share. Right. So sometimes I'm just like, I can't get through to him or like, I want to be able to phrase this differently. And it's like super helpful. But if you do that, if you start that like in a happy time, then you just get better at communicating. You just get better. And then that, that like kind of ensures that things aren't going to get bad or when they get bad that you like, you'll know how to work together on it. Right, right, right. I think so many people just try to fix things after they're totally broken. Right. Whether it's at work, whether it's in your personal life. And I think like it's so much harder to dig yourself out of a hole than to just continuously be trying to get better every day. So you touched on earlier, um, just the culture of the company. That's something else that I've read a lot about. And like even going on sites where people who currently work it away or have previously worked it away where they are able to, you know, comment on the experience and, and like, it's so positive, like it's so positive, the, the culture that you are cultivating at a way. And, you know, you mentioned when you first came uh, to the U.S. that what you really craved was community, right? Mm -hmm. And now you, you have this company of yours, which is, I mean, it's like a, a massive family in a way. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I think a lot of times when I talk about community, I talk about like our community of customers and like what we're building there. But more important than anything is like our community of employees. And I'm going to be like, to be totally candid and transparent, it's not always a positive experience. I think sometimes people leave and they're burnt out or they, you know, they experience things it's like a startup. Like there's things that happen that they may not have loved. But I think what you'll find is that the experience is really consistent. Like it's like it's very defined. The culture exists and some people really figure out how to get in there. And like, and add to it. And for some people, like, they're like, it's not for me. And we're super transparent about that in the beginning. We're like, this is what it takes to work it away. You have to be good with ambiguity. You have to be good with change. You have to like really enjoy that stuff. I am friends with some of the most talented, talented people in the world. And I like tell them about a way and they're like, oh, I could never work in a place like that. I like things super defined. I like things like this. But that's like a level of self-awareness that you get as you progress in your career. But I, I think it's like we have this culture. It's been defined not by us, but by every single employee that's ever worked it away. It's like a living, breathing thing. It's like changed over time. But we're super candid and we're super like aware about what that culture is at any given point. And I think it's up for people to decide, like for people who don't yet work it away, to decide if they want to be a part of that or not. 
And that must be so instrumental, right? In just like the success of a way. It's like the culture internally in the company as well as externally. Cause I've, you know, had friends who've worked for very aspirational companies, but behind closed doors, it's a completely different story. And when those things don't run parallel, you can hide it for some time, but in, you know, the long run, you can't. Yeah. I mean, I think we know that everyone's like BS radar is like very heightened nowadays. You know, we live in an age where just like everything's transparent. There are no secrets. People talk like you can't hide that stuff anymore. So it's like, you know, why bother? Just be like upfront with it. It also just like causes problems. I think if you're an employer and you pretend like your culture is one thing and someone quits their job to go work for you and it's not that, then they're unhappy. They're not going to be good at their job. You're going to be miserable that you have an unhappy employee who's not good at their job. Like it doesn't, like no one benefits from that. Yeah, I've heard from, I have so many friends who have been in that situation where they were like poached from one company and then brought to another one with promises of like, you know, all of these these big things and very quickly, you know, that kind of crumbles and it it changes. Yeah, like what's what's the point? I, I'm I know. probably such a downer to like to interview with because it's like <laughs> like for job interviews because I'm just gonna be, I'm going to be really real with you about like what's what's going well here, what's not, where the gaps are. Like I'm not going to sit there and like paint this picture and then like you come in and it's it's not what I told you. I don't know, that just doesn't there's nothing productive about that. Fast forward, we are now in 2019 and Away is named a unicorn company. So mm-hmm. I actually I actually had to Google this. I was like, didn't know what a unicorn company was. But so why don't you tell us? I, now I know because I Googled it. It's but so it's funny because like, if you're not in like the venture capital world, like why would you know? It's such it's a like, weird and like, term. It, it is. And it's like kind of like a magical yeah. – and it's – I'm like – a unicorn company to describe? It was actually coined by a female venture capitalist okay. a few years ago to describe private companies, usually venture-backed, that are worth over a billion dollars. So five or six years ago, there weren't that many, and there's still not that many now. I think there's 360 yeah, privately held companies mm-hmm. worth over a billion. But I think for a lot of startups, it's a big milestone. Like you raise money at every stage, you have a valuation. And when your valuation reaches a billion, it's like, you know, that's what VCs are looking for. They're looking to invest in companies that will be worth a billion dollars or more someday. And it's so funny because when you first started the company, I remember being on vacation. It wasn't vacation. It was just like a weekend with my friends. But they were like, wow, so you're starting this luggage company. Like, what's the goal? And I was like, I don't know, but could you imagine if we like absolutely nailed it and one day we could sell this company for a hundred million dollars? They're all like, yeah, that's crazy. And I was like, yeah, I know, but like a girl can dream. Now it's just like, that would be an absolute failure. Like we reached that hundred million valuation, maybe like a year and a half in, and it's grown so much since then. But it just, this is not something I could fathom when we started the company. And I think at every stage, like success looks like something different. But even now we raised our last fundraising round. We raised a hundred million dollars from investors at a $1.4 billion valuation. And it doesn't feel like, okay, we did it. It's the end. Now we're like, like that only happened because like we have a lot more stuff we have to do. We're like expanding in a million different ways. We like have a strategic plan that we need capital to execute on. And like, it was like part of the job. So yeah, of course, like a huge milestone that like we celebrated with a team, but it was just like, 
a thing that had to happen for us to keep going with our vision. So, yeah, I mean, like for me, I'm like trying to even wrap my head around that, like 1.4 billion. I think that is as realistic to me as a unicorn. Like, yeah, much, yeah. And, that's, like, and that's like where the term comes from. But it's it's really funny because it is a hard thing to like wrap your head around. I remember when, and I always tell people this, like we raised our seed round. It was two and a half million dollars. Actually, forget before that we raised our friends and family round when Peter wrote us that check. Yeah. Literally friends and family writing checks for like five or $10,000 each. I think we raised like a hundred grand. And that was the hardest thing I've ever done. Pitching our idea to people we knew, asking them to invest in us. Asking for their money. Asking for their money to like ask them to take a risk. That was like raising the hundred million. I mean, there's like a lot of logistics, a lot of conversations, a lot of like talking about our vision. But like that was to us, it was just like business as usual. We're like, this is our vision. We're going after it. Do you want to be a part of it or not? Yeah. And obviously like we've had practice over the years. We've raised a few different rounds. I don't know. It's it's a hard number to wrap your head around, but it was like, in a way, it like almost wasn't as meaningful as, as like that first As 100. that first $5,000 check. Your life has changed so much in yeah. such a short amount of time. It's like, wild. do you ever just, do you ever just like sit and you're like, whoa, like you're on the cover of Inc. Magazine, you see your face in Times Square on one of those jumbo screens. Like, didn't you, was it you and Steph or just you that rang the bell at NASDAQ? Like The whole company, the well, whole, not the whole company, the whole leadership team. You get engaged this year. It's just like all of these yeah. things are, you have unicorn status this year. Like yeah. all of these wild, incredible things are happening. Like, how are you dealing with that? Like, how is that soaking in? Well, it's so funny because definitely a lot Do you even have time has happened this year. To like let that sink in. Oh, I'm, I'm like giving myself time. But I think so many things have happened this year. Got engaged, bought a house, a lot of stuff going on with the way. Obviously, there's just like a lot of things from getting a dog next month. Oh, you are? Yeah. Oh, congrats. <laughs> but like things like that where it's just like, I think so much is happening that I've kind of like gotten used to the fact that like just big things happen and and that's what it is. But I think- if you look back at any like two year period in my life, it might have been when I like dropped out of Penn State to move to LA to work at Neutrogena, or like when I left Orbi to move to London, or even just like the changes that have happened while I've been in New York. It all felt big at the time, you know? So I don't know if I'm going to look back in a few years and be like, oh, well, that obviously was really big, but you just keep going. I don't know. I like, I'm a big believer at work in celebrating milestones because I think they represent you know, a lot of hard work and a lot of like energy that people put into the work. And and that's how you get to those milestones. That's how you become worth over a billion dollars, for example. But I, I feel like in my personal life, it's not like I've never been big on like the big milestones. I mean, I love a party. I love right. birthdays, I love things right. like that. But it's not like that's the goal. And you know, some people they're like, oh, getting engaged. It's like my goal this year. And I'm like, that's so weird. I mean, I'm like you, I'm always, I am more so the person of like, well, what's next? Yeah. Because like, I'm like, I'm and done not in with a bad that. way. Not, no, in, not in a bad I, way. And I have to explain this to my team all the time because like everyone works so hard and accomplishes so much. And my, my instinct is like, okay, well, what's next? Or what else can, or what more can we do? But that's just how I've always like lived my life. And I, I'm like more conscious in the way I phrase things at work now. But yeah, it's, it's like, Okay, cool. This I think milestones are a great time to like pause and celebrate and be grateful, like give gratitude to like yourself and the people around you who like made that thing happen. 
but then you move on. It's like, it's just another day. So you mentioned earlier that you have a lot of up and coming things for away. Can you tell us a little? Yeah. I mean, some, it's for me, it's like one, I think having this company has been amazing because it's the longest I've ever worked anywhere. I think a lot of people, I feel like my investors will listen to this and they're like, oh God, is she going to get bored and and leave? (laughs) But it just like doesn't happen because we're creating every single day. And for me, that's like an easy way to make sure I don't get bored is to make sure I'm creating something every day. If I think back to like my favorite, I mean, it's been so much fun the last few years, but my favorite time was that time with Steph when we were just like building and like really like getting our hands dirty and like really digging into things. And now we're, we're at a point where a lot of um, our work is focused on scaling and like creating something that will last. But some of the things I'm really excited about are like the really new categories we're going into. So we're going to apparel, we're going into wellness, we're creating a lot more products. I'm kind of like switching that part of my brain back on of like starting something from scratch because we have this amazing opportunity to create something from scratch, but also to launch it to millions of people who already know us, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like yeah. the best of both worlds. Yeah. Like I'm having so much fun right now. I'm just so optimistic about like the team that we have, the right. things that we're working on. I just had a, we had a happy hour yesterday with all of our new hires. It was like, you know, like a room full of 30 people who just started away. And I don't know, I, there's just like a sense of like newness and optimism and like excitement every time we do one of those things because like you're you you look around and you realize wow people like made sacrifices quit jobs like to come here because they believe in what we're doing and now they get to come add to it I don't know we're having so much fun right yeah, now. yeah I just got chills thinking about yeah that. like it's amazing and and I'm super real and I say this all the time Steph gets mad at me because she's like it's so depressing when we're at like a happy hour and you tell of, of like people who just started away and then you talk about them quitting but I'm super real about it because I think a lot of companies talk to you as if like you're going to stay there forever. And let's be real. It's like a big thing if like a millennial stays at a job for for two years now. I mean, look at me. Like I'm, you know. The longest. Yeah. This is the longest (laughs) I've ever worked anywhere. Like before this, the longest I'd worked at summer was two years. Right. You know, so now I'm like, I'm doubling that. It's amazing. I know. But I tell everyone when they started away that, you know, we hope they'll stay there for a long time and we hope they'll add a lot of value. But realistically... Like this will be like part of their path and then they'll move on. And we want every single person who works it away to look back and be like, that is where I got to do the best work of my life. And I had a platform to do that. To me, that's a success. If someone can work it away for a few years, two years, 10 years, however long it is, and then look back and be like, that's where I shaped my career. It's not about like what's in the fridge or the events that we're having or that it's like a cool brand to work for. It's like, I don't know. We want everyone to feel like they're actually contributing. I think if you, even if you ask Steph, like the biggest frustrations in our careers have been when we've wanted to do more and we've been told like, that's not your job or like, that's not part of your scope. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think even at this size, we're just like encouraging people to always do more because we don't want to become like one of those companies where you have a job description, you come in, like you do the job and you leave. Like I want people to feel like they're like, adding value every single day. And it makes someone excited to go to work, you know? Yeah. Honestly. You can't teach people to care. No. I mean, as much as you can try. You can try. You know, there's a part of my life where I I thought you could do that, but you can't. No, 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 you can't. 
One other thing that I thought was really interesting that I did dig a little for is the partnership that you have with a charity called Peace Direct. Mm -hmm. You built that idea into the very early stages, right, of when you were doing away. Yeah, so we had a partnership with Peace Direct before we even had a suitcase. So what is Peace Direct? Peace Direct is, is a nonprofit organization. They basically work with what they call peace builders around the world, like in conflict areas. So to them, a peace builder is someone who could be in Pakistan and is like advocating for education for women or in the Congo, someone who's like working to rehabilitate child soldiers who like were abducted, I don't know, back in their communities. So, you know, every conflict area is different. Every conflict is different. And their mission is to to directly support the people in the middle of it versus, you know, kind of like the the big like first world solution, which is like go to the UN, send people in and like have outsiders try to fix it. So in a way they're like, they're just supporting all these like little organizations and like people on the ground. And we found them, well, actually the, the genesis of this is like Steph and I started talking about building this company and it was really important to us that if we're going to start a company and if it's going to be successful, we're actually making a positive impact in the world. You like, called it a net positive. Net positive impact. Which I really, really, yeah. I really like that. Yeah. And I think that, again, there's a lot of ways to make a lot of money. You could be like my friend who just like makes crappy the things. Amazon guy. On Amazon. <laughs> yeah. Or you could get it right. And for us, like getting it right was more important, like doing it the right way versus just doing it. Because like, did we need a social impact plan? Did we need like a philanthropic partner? No. Could we have just like launched and sold like a bunch of suitcases on some website? Like, yeah. sure. Would we have made some money? Yeah, probably. But we were just like, let's, let's just like do this right. Like if I, I never think I just have one shot or anything, but we're like, okay, this is a shot at this. So let's like, let's just try to do things the way we like would really want to do it. And that was a big part of it. And we actually had you start, you're like, okay, I'm going to make a net positive impact on the world. What does that mean? Who do I partner with? What do you support? Is it education? Is it women? Is it poverty? Is it like, there's so many, there's so a many lot things. of problems. There's a lot her. of problems. And we actually worked with someone who was interning for us at the time. And she, she was like studying this in university. And we looked at dozens of causes, hundreds of organizations. And what we loved about Peace Direct was that they were like small like us. I think when they started, there were six people in a little office in London. Wow. We emailed them being like, we want to be your corporate partner. And the CEO came to visit us in New York. And it was like the two of us in an apartment. And he was like, okay. <laughs> he was like, sure. <laughs> and since then, we've supported them financially through, I think now like it's in the millions in, in financial donations. What I'm most proud of is like we've donated like our team's time. So like you could be like a graphic designer in a way and you'll be like, hey, I want to work with Peace Direct this quarter. Like we'll work with them to create a project. And actually like our team did a rebrand of like something Peace Direct was working on. Those are things like when you're a nonprofit, you're like, you're never going to be like, hey, we're going to spend our money to get a graphic designer. You know what I mean? Or we're going to hire an email marketer like right away, like when you're really small. So it's So it's been amazing for our team to be able to contribute their skills in that way. And I think it's just such an important part of what we do, like not just Peace Direct, but just like having it in our DNA that like we have a platform to make things better, especially now, you know, like we we can like lend a voice to the things we care about. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's like such an important thing that that Away is doing. 
Again, have to commend you on that. And because we have you here and we are talking about travel, first of all, what are the cases that you use from Away? So I don't have an answer because I like I basically try all the new stuff. Oh, you do? Yeah. It's okay. Like I, I like wear test everything. So actually, if you see me in the airport, it will probably be with something that hasn't come out yet. Oh, cool. uh, so people are always being like, "What is that?" Who, like, if they know who I am, they'll say hi. And if they don't know who I am, they'll be like, "I didn't know way made that." And I'm like, "Shh." <laughs> <laughs> What's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given, and who gave it to you? I don't know. I'm one of those people who gets advice, and I immediately discard it. <laughs> <laughs> or like, I'm like, what? I don't know if this fits into my life. If not that, like a mantra, like something. Yeah, um, a mantra. So I have this ring on. It says, if not now, then when? Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like that like summarizes so, pretty. so much of what I've done. And I, th- I think it's funny as I, as I get older because like, if you think about all the decisions I've made, everything we've just talked about, so much of it is like, if not now, then when? Like if I'm not going to leave this job to do this one, like, then when can I do it? Like if I'm not going to move to London now, when can I do it? So I do it. And it's so funny as I get older because I still ask myself, like, if not now, then when? And so much of the answer is like, oh, yeah, there is a better time to do that. It used to be like my mantra to get me to like say yes to things. To do things immediately. Yeah. And now it's my mantra to like take my time and do Mm -hmm. things when it feels more right. So I think like no matter what point in your life, if you just like stop to consider that, because there's a lot of things I want to do. But yeah, maybe you should have thought about that before getting the dog. But (laughs) no, you're... (laughs) I mean, the dog sounds great. Yeah, but yeah, I think it's it's just about so much of it, and this is like really vague advice, but so much of it is just like being real with yourself about what you want and if you need it now. Mm. You know, I think so many of my my decisions have been like I'm like I I need this for myself now, mm. and that's even when like the decisions haven't worked out, that's made it okay for me. Thank you so much for coming, and I think. A lot of people, myself included, have learned so many new things about you today. Thank you. Okay. So thoughtful about these (laughs) questions. Okay. Bye. All right. So what did I say? Wasn't that such a great conversation? I always joke to people that when you get an Aries and a Leo together, two fire signs, hello, the conversation is going to be lit. So I'm so glad that Jen brought it. Sometimes when you sit down with really high profile people, you never really know if they're going to get into all the sticky parts of their lives, but Jen really went there. So thank you, Jen. For me, Jen and what her partner Steph are doing at Away, well, it is a new paradigm. If you want to reach out to Jen on social media, you can say hi to her at Jennifer on Instagram. And while you're at it, make sure you say hi to us at Vanessa Wants to Know, same as the podcast name. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. So each new episode is delivered right to you. Super easy peasy. And rate us five out of five. Again, I just want to thank you, all of you, for taking the time to give me your ears and bandwidth, literally. I know there's a lot of stuff we can consume out there in the crazy digital world. And to know you've chosen us that Vanessa wants to know, that really means the world to me. So thank you. Until next time, this is Vanessa Hong for Vanessa Wants to Know.